Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Better Living, a show about the people and organizations that make an impact around Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm your host this week, Chris Arnold of 105.3 The Fan. Thanks for joining me. Later on this hour, we're going to catch up with the Tarrant Area Food Bank President and CEO, Julie Butner. As you know, our food banks in North Texas are doing so much to help people during this difficult time, and Julie will tell us what's ahead for the Tarrant Area Food Bank in 2021. But first, we're happy to be joined by Dr. Athena Trenton, the Executive Director of NAMI North Texas. NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. NAMI provides support, education, and advocacy for individuals and family members impacted by mental health struggles. To learn about their free services in DFW, you can visit NAMINorthTexas.org. Dr. Trenton, how you doing? I'm doing fabulous. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Can I call you Athena? Yes, please do. All right. First of all, for those who don't know, what is NAMI North Texas? So as you mentioned earlier, NAMI North Texas, uh, we are the local um, North Texas affiliate of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Our service area is Denton, Collin, Rockwell, and Dallas counties. So there's a NAMI affiliate for almost every county in Texas. Um, NAMI Tarrant County covers the west side of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So no matter where you're at, there's likely a NAMI near you. Can you tell us about the history of NAMI across the country? Sure. Um, so it started, gosh, I believe in 1979 up in Ohio. A couple of mothers were kind of sitting there. Both of their children had mental health issues, and they didn't feel like there was a lot of support around them. It wasn't, you know, at, at that point in time, the stigma was even, you know, greater than it is now in relation to talking about it, finding resources, finding the appropriate medical attention and recognizing it as an actual health issue. So they came up with the idea of developing uh, an organization that helps parents first um, and help family members learn where the resources are, um, learn how to support each other, and then eventually developing peer programs that help the people who were um, challenged with the mental health issues themselves. And um, that started taking shape and growing um, uh, to, to let you know how quickly that grew across the U.S. and how much of a need there was for a resource like that. Um, our organization, NAMI North Texas, which started as, um, gosh, even before it was NAMI Dallas, it was something else. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, NAMI Dallas started in 1982, so only three years later, it it made its way down to Texas. And so, um, and now it's a national organization in all 50 states. And we cover, you know, there's three levels of NAMI, just to give you an idea of how the structure of the organization works. Mm -hmm. We do have the national level now, so that um, no matter which NAMI you go to in the United States, let's say you're in Dallas right now, you're one of them. Our community members, we like to call ourselves the NAMI North Texas family because that's how, how the community we, we work on building um, so that we relate to each other just like, you know, a supportive family. Right. Yeah, and 
Um, so no matter where you go, let's say you move from Dallas and you move up to Seattle, Washington, and you're looking for a NAMI there, that NAMI will provide the exact same programming, the base programming, the national, like the support groups, the classes, they're all the same. And national makes sure that the fidelity of all of those programs are implemented exactly the same across the board. So no matter where you are in the United States, you get those same core programs. And so NAMI National makes sure that happens. They do the advocating at the federal level for um, mental health-friendly bills in the federal legislature. And then we have the state NAMI programs that support the affiliates, help with resources, and work on advocacy at the state level. And then we have the local affiliates like NAMI North Texas who we're the people who are right there in person, implementing the programs, developing the supportive communities, advocating reducing stigma locally, and generally that central place where people can go to where they don't know where to start when they know there's a mental health issue in the family with themselves. Um, they're afraid to reach out, admit it, and they can just, you know, call us and we'll walk them through the steps on what to do, where to go, who to talk to. And so that's what we do in that respect. And that's um, kind of how the, the whole program structured. And what? I think I like went way off <laughs> no. to another area. And then I was supposed to address your question after that. So did I address the question? You addressed the question. You gave us the background okay. and the history, and that's what we were looking for. We're talking with Dr. Sure. Athena Trenton, the executive director of NAMI North Texas. Can you tell us about your background and how you got involved in NAMI? Sure. Um, it, it's funny. I didn't even know NAMI existed when I applied for the executive director position. I, I found a position opening and said, this is this." Sounds great. It's perfect. I, I, you know, have evolved into building nonprofits and running smaller mm -hmm. nonprofits. Um, my background, my doctorate is in education, educational leadership and international education. So I started out in academia, working in student affairs, implementing programs for um, underrepresented communities, both international students and I worked a lot with uh, the multicultural offices as well. And then I did some consulting on, on intercultural communications and how to work with people with backgrounds that are um, different than your own mm -hmm. and learning how to work in multicultural environments. And, you know, somehow my career evolved into working in nonprofits. When I moved to Dallas, I couldn't find a job in academia down here, so I started in the nonprofit world, and that led me into NAMI North Texas. And when I started the job, I thought, okay, this is perfect. I, I, I've started my own pro nonprofit in Michigan and built it on my own and then was COO of another one here in Dallas, and this is my chance to really um, pull all of the experience I have into, you know, one organization and um, some uncon you know, unconventional experience that probably would help us be able to reach out and um, impact a larger population. And little did I know that this job would be such a serendipitous experience for me. I am one of those people who grew up thinking that my thoughts of suicide my depression was all just being a teenager, that it was a normal teenage thing. Mm -hmm. And so I just pushed through it. My parents didn't think that much of it. They thought, hey, it's just, you know, you're a teenager. This happens. This is what it is. Once you get off to college and you grow up, it'll be fine. And you'll mature and things, these types of things won't bother you so much. And I got into college and everything was great. And then I um, started having some other health issues, which exacerbated the mental health issues. But So then I was able to blame it on the regular health issues. Mm -hmm. And so my entire adult life, I was battling this chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. 
And so I just blamed the mental health issues on that. And to me, mental health issues were a weakness. If you couldn't push through and, you know, strength was overcoming everything, strength was, you know, that whole, and I want to say it's kind of a farce, the whole American dream thing. Mm-hmm. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work hard, use your resources, and no matter where you come from, you can become anything you want. And that was the attitude I had for myself, not necessarily for everybody. Because working in the multicultural world, I'm very aware mm-hmm. of, you know, the societal influences on socioeconomic status and barriers for underrepresented communities. But for me, myself, even though I came from a Native American background, that didn't apply to me in my head. And so I felt like if I were to admit to myself I had a mental health issue, I was weak. And I'm not weak. I'm strong. So push through, push through, push through. And then um, I lived by myself for a lot of my adult life. So anytime I had to get away from people, anytime I couldn't get out of bed, I could call into work sick. And it didn't feel like a mental health problem to me. I just kept blaming it on everything else in the world because I'm not weak. And I got this job at NAMI after I had some of the lowest points in my life. I moved down to Dallas, married my husband, and just ran into a brick wall socially, professionally, emotionally, in every way you could think of and lost a lot of confidence because I could not find a job in my field. And um, once I got this job with NAMI and I started talking with our board members, uh, our community, and, you know, I want to walk the walk. If I'm going to run this organization, I have to walk the walk. But I didn't think I had personal experience. I just knew I could run a nonprofit organization. And then all of a sudden, I'm just like, wow, I can look back on my childhood and see how I made myself sick to my stomach with my anxiety, how the suicidal ideations that I did have were real. They weren't just because I was a teenager. And even now when I can't get out of bed and I'm, you know, I take antidepressants. I've been taking antidepressants for a few years, but I just never made the connection and never admitted to myself that I had a mental health issue. So, being part of NAMI North Texas has helped me grow and has helped me become that person who can really dive into this organization and say, I've been there. I know exactly, you know, how to work with this organization, how to grow it, how to develop that community of support that we want that has no judgment, no stigma. And we're all supportive of each other because I know if I had that before, you know, a year and a half ago, there's a lot of struggles that I had in my life. I probably, they probably would not have been as severe as they actually were. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. And I am having the time of my life. I am just excited to work every single day and meet more and more people who are you know, have the same passions I do about mental health. You know, this is a great story. And what I love about your story, and by the way, congratulations on, you know, the fact that you are the executive director and it's a perfect match and that you are authentic. And I bring up the phrase authentic because once upon a time there was also street cred. And the fact that you've lived it means so much to so many people who are being treated or being cared for to know this, not just somebody who who read about it in a book and that you're just not just a doctor who diagnosed it, but you've actually lived some of the same situations that they have. So I give you a lot of credit for your authenticity and the fact that this is a situation that's meant to be for you so far right now. I appreciate that so very much. I, I don't think I would have ever, you know, come to a place where I was, comfortable with myself if I didn't find this community. I don't have to be the executive director of it as long as I'm part of it. And you know what? You mentioned earlier about how once upon a time there was a thought that if you had 
uh, depression or mental illness or and, and suffering from any kind of mental pressures that that was a weakness. And in the world of sports and sports talk radio, which is my world, we've been around a lot of some of the greatest athletes, some of the greatest coaches, sports figures who have suffered some forms of depression, and they've talked about it. And can you talk about how just the having an idea of a conversation could actually help people feel better? Um, yeah, absolutely. Just the idea of just having that conversation and not holding it inside, you know, whether you really be- believe it in yourself, whether you were, you are like I was thinking that, well, this is a weakness. I have to get past this. First thing to do is mental health is part of your overall health. Yes. Um, it doesn't matter what belief system you come from, but I'm just going to use my American Indian belief system um, as an example. We, we live by a philosophy that is circular. We call it the medicine wheel divided into four equal parts. Those four equal parts represent a lot of different things, but it basically says each thing that it represents creates that full circle. So one piece of it is your health, your mental health, your spiritual, physical, and social health. And so you must have you know, they must all be in balance for you to be one with yourself, one with your creator, one with whatever you believe the universe brings you. And so one thing that we hope for with the advocacy that we do and all that is to make sure people understand that mental health is part of your overall health. That's the first thing in initiating that conversation is recognizing mm-hmm. that it's part of your health. Mm-hmm. Just like you treat, you know, let's say pick any chronic illness. It's common for us to pick diabetes because they're very, very similar in relation to how they're treated. You're usually treated for the rest of your life. If you don't take your medicine, you get very, very sick. And so you have medicine that you take regular. It's the same thing. So if you can help look at it as a medical condition, mental health, when something's not right in your brain, it's a chemical imbalance. So there is a physical portion to it. Or it could be hormonal. There's a lot of different um, potential causes for it. And I'm not a clinician or a medical doctor, so that's as far as I can go with that. But So the first thing I would say is to have that conversation, recognize you're talking about a medical condition. So it's not weakness. Can you also strength. talk about, yeah, you talk about the strength, but you're also mm-hmm. talking about how it is part of your overall health. Exercise sure. improves a lot of people's physical health. Can exercise improve their mental health? Oh, absolutely. You can read article upon article um, that exercise, especially aerobic exercise, increases your endorphins. And the endorphins ah. are kind of you. That the happy place of your brain, yes. so to speak. And the more active you are, the the more you release those endorphins, the more you do things that make you happy. So, you know, exercise is good in all aspects. Um, but just trying not to be isolated is really, really important. That's what you know, the current situation with the pandemic and everything else going on. So many people are isolated right now. There's a lot of people that are going out, going for walks, starting to run, doing things because they have the time to exercise. But there's other people who are just getting, either they're scared to go outside or they're stuck in their houses and they're not really that physical of people. And that isolation could actually make things worse. So exercising is a great way to get yourself out of that shell and to increase those endorphins. We're talking with Dr. Athena Trenton, the executive director of NAMI North Texas, and you mentioned the pandemic. Let's get into the pandemic and how it affects us mentally. Now, we've been told to isolate, but self-isolation, which you've talked about, can also affect us mentally in these different ways you just said. Can you express the difference between dealing with mental illness in the pandemic and on a regular basis when people are more social. Mm -hmm. So 
when people are more social, we have more motivation to get up and out, to get out of our beds. When people are really depressed, and it's not just depression, what I want to make sure is what we know, we know what mental health is. Mental health is a full spectrum of things from, you know, some people think it's only when somebody's schizophrenic and running around thinking that um, somebody, you know, imaginary people are after them. Well, that does happen. There are people who hear voices. There are people who hear voices that tell them to do things, sometimes good things, sometimes um, harmful things. But that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is, you know, depression, anxiety, and, you know, sometimes it's just situational. You're going through a grieving process. You're um, going through a really stressful time and trying to write your dissertation. I can tell you I've been through that. <laughs> there are days <laughs> you're just, you do not want to get up. And, you know, so you could have a situational issue. So there's that whole spectrum and everything in between. So before the pandemic, that spectrum existed. And, you know, one in five people, um, it's estimated that one in five people are affected by some type of mental illness. So um, whether it's, you know, diagnosed, treated, whatever, um, there's other statistics on whether or not people are treated, and there's a whole bunch of stats that I could go into, but based on your question, you know, to answer that, pre-pandemic, you have that spectrum, one in five people are affected, but there's things, you know, but all of the resources that were available before, you know, are, you, know, you could get up, you could get out, you could go have dinner with a friend and get your mind off whatever's causing your anxiety. You could go have dinner with your family. And so you didn't have that isolation. Isolation is one of the worst things that you can do for yourself if you suffer from anywhere in that spectrum. Mm-hmm. in relation to mental health. You know, so, um, Dr. Dr. Trenton, one of the yeah. things I, I mm-hmm. read about, and it has been wonderful for my household, not that we have any kind of uh, depression or stress in our household, but I understand when the pandemic first started, there was a lot of households that had stress involved because people were working at home or they couldn't get out like you were saying. And I read an article about pets. If people had pets, that pets actually help people who are depressed and maybe in the pandemic. Have you found anything about that? That's actually been, I've seen more articles about that right now. Gosh, I think I saw one just recently about how, I don't remember the statistics, but the adoptions Mm -hmm. have been up. I don't remember what the statistic was, at least doubled during the pandemic because, especially people living alone, you need somebody there with you. Right. That isolation can actually provoke mental health issues. And um, during the pandemic, we're seeing a very big increase in people who never had issues before having issues now. Just take it as Prescott and Mm -hmm. other famous people now coming out and Speaking up about, yeah, being isolated like that, really, you know, I'm the anxiety about, you know, can I play football and still be healthy and safe? Am I going to ruin my career if I agree to play football? Mm-hmm. Should I take this year off? Am I going to ruin my career taking this year off? Mm-hmm. And then you're sitting home alone or like you were talking about the NBA players, they're playing in a bubble and right. they see their families and it's just all of that together and just can trigger practically anyone. I would be very surprised if someone hasn't experienced a certain amount of situational depression and anxiety, if not more. Have you um, seen a rise? Yes. Have you, have you also seen a rise in celebrities? You mentioned Dak Prescott and we were talking earlier about some of the NBA players in the, in the bubble over the summertime being isolated away from their family and friends, even though they had everything you could ask for, they still were, uh, dealing with some forms of depression. Can you talk about maybe over the last few years, different mm-hmm. celebrities talking about their own uh, battles with depression? Have you seen a rise in that? And is it helpful as far as everyday people understanding that they're not alone? I, 
I think that is extremely helpful. Um, celebrities have a very large platform. And, you know, depending on how they want to use it, it could be extremely helpful in helping us understand that that conversation about mental health should be just as common as that conversation about diabetes. And the more people that can speak up and talk about it, the more it becomes normalized, the more it becomes accepted as a true medical condition. And the stigma can go away. And there's stigma in all different manners. Um, there's stigma professionally. Um, you talk about first responders. Mm -hmm. You know, you work with a partner. We've got a police officer on our board, and he's the mental health liaison for his department. And he and I talk all the time about the stigma among first responders and what do we do to get them help because they witness trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma and are expected to just swallow it and go back to work. And if they admit that they have, that is bothering them and their mental health is affected, how are they supposed to be able to go out and take care of their partners while they're out on a, a dangerous call? How are they supposed to take care of our community? How are they supposed to, you know, have that resiliency? But they're human. You know, there's stigma in different communities, faith-based communities. Um, you know, they'll say pray it away. You know, some, not all. Mm -hmm. um, there's definitely different cultural. There's certain, you know, communities where the culture is, no, that doesn't happen in our community. And... You know, you go, you know, take care of yourself and, you know, mental health, mental illness is not an illness. There's something wrong with you. So that stigma is all over the place. So if we can see all different sorts of people who have platforms, mm -hmm. you know, people from different professions, people from different cultural backgrounds, different faith-based, religious, belief system backgrounds to help alleviate the stigma and develop those conversations, I think um, it will help just the average everyday person say, you know what, if um, Lady Gaga can say that in public on camera, I can talk to my mom about it. I think that's excellent. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, you mentioned the platforms and there are so many people who get their information on social media of all ages, but I've, I want to, Focus right now on Generation Z. Those are the teenagers. Because you brought this up earlier, that when you were a teenager, you were thinking that, okay, I'm I'm feeling bad about some things mentally, and your parents are like, oh, you get over it, you're just a teenager. I've noticed that in some of the articles I've read and some of the kids that I've talked to, that because they have access to so much information, some of them are suffering from depression because of information overload. Can you talk about some examples of Generation Z kids that might be battling some mental illness? Um, yeah, actually, the first thing to recognize is that, like, um, I'm not sure how old you are, but I can tell you that, you know, I was, you know, in grade school, middle school, high school, you know, before there was social media. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can relate then. Yes. Um, and... So when I got bullied, I got home, the bullying was over. So I had my family and I had my support group and I had the friends that I wanted to be around around me. In Gen Z, everything's about social media. Everything's about trying to put your, your best person out there. But the bullying doesn't stop now. The, you know, reputations can get completely ruined so easy. So the anxiety of, oh my gosh, this person is saying this about me. Right. Or they, yeah, all of that stuff. So there's so much more pressure on kids in middle school and high school right now because your image is your face. Well, they don't use Facebook, right? Now, Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and, yeah, and TikTok. all that. Um, so that, your image is what's on there. Yep. It's not just what's on the playground or what's in study hall or, you know, you as class president. And so <laughs> I would say there are a lot more pressures on kids right now 
to, and there's, I wouldn't be surprised if you looked at, I haven't looked at longitudinal statistics. I just know current statistics, but there is a hot, a, a very high um, rate of undiagnosed and unaddressed mental health issues. And one of our programs, which is called Ending the Silence, we go into uh, middle schools and high schools and we talk to the students. We also have a parent version and a staff version about it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to talk about it. And this is how you talk about it. And then letting them know what the signs and symptoms are so they can either recognize it in themselves or express concern to their friends or about their friends to a teacher or a parent and letting them know it's okay because you care. And if we can get, you know, get them to talk about it that early in life, as they grow up and become adults, it's going to be a normal conversation for them, which means the next generation is a normal conversation. It just becomes more and more normalized through that. And the other great thing that comes out of the, the early intervention piece is that most people, the signs of a mental illness are not recognized until people get to be about college age. Mm -hmm. And whether you're in college or not, um, but most people talk about kids in college who that's where the symptoms show up to a point where they can't function anymore and something extreme happens and they have to quit college or quit the job or quit the technical school they're in or whichever route they choose after high school. And if we can catch them in middle school or high school, when the symptoms are not that severe, we can get them help earlier and we can prevent those things from happening. And it's the, the younger we can recognize the symptoms and get them help, um, I think we can eventually reduce the numbers um, and the statistics of 20-somethings um, and even adults with mental health conditions that are not controlled. Dr. Trenton, well. this has been an outstanding conversation. Before we let you get out of here, are there any major events or programs you'd like to share about NAMI North Texas? Um, I'd like to mention, one, we we are doing everything virtually, probably at least until next fall. I think that's the case with most people. Um, I'd like to mention, if you are a, someone challenged with a mental health condition, or a family member, we have virtual support groups right now, family support groups on Tuesday evenings, uh, peer support groups on Thursday evenings. Just check out our website. We have classes for families um, and for peers, and those are starting up within the next couple weeks. They last eight weeks, once a week. Um, but our big event, our big community event, which, again, is going to be virtual this year, but we had, we were, had huge success last year, is our NAMI walk. That's our big fundraiser for the year. But this is it, really what it's about is bringing the community together and helping, you know, create that bond, that no stigma, non-judgmental community and help raise awareness about mental health as well as raise funds for our organization so we can continue to provide all of our um, our services for free. We charge nothing for anything that we do. And so that is going to be on May 22nd, and people can sign up already to start their teams, start fundraising. Um, everything is ready to go right now. So you can go to our website, naminortexas.org, sign up for support groups, classes, as well as start um, pulling your teams together and register for our walk. Dr. Athena Trenton, the Executive Director of NAMI North Texas. Again, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you. Oh, we appreciate you, too. You have been um, amazing supporters of our organization and of the mental health community. We really appreciate um, the help that you give us as well. Thank you. We are now joined by the Tarrant Area Food Bank President and CEO, Julia Butner. How are you doing, Julie? I'm doing good. How are you today? Well, you guys are just absolutely awesome. The food banks in North Texas are doing so much, helping so many people, especially during this pandemic. We got to say thank you, thank you, thank you, first of all. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And also, could you tell us a little bit, for those who don't know, a little bit about the history of the Tarrant Area Food Bank? 
Well, the Tarrant Area Food Bank was started in 1982 by a woman by the name of Pat Maurer. She was one of our uh, community leaders and uh, was, uh, you know, she lived right here in Fort Worth on the west side. And um, it was really a grassroots effort. She saw a lot of food waste that was happening in the community. And she also saw a lot of community neighbors who were hungry and in need. And she wanted to find a way to connect the two. And she worked with some other uh, local community members, and they started Tarrant Area Food Bank back in 1982. Wow. So how did you personally get involved? And talk about your background just a little bit. Well, I've been with Tarrant Area Food Bank for about a a year now. In fact, yesterday I celebrated my one-year anniversary. Well, congratulations. (laughs) Welcome aboard. Yeah, welcome aboard. And what a year it's been, I'll tell you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I got involved. I've I've been uh, a community member for a long time. I went to Texas Christian University. TCU, go Frogs. Go Frogs. I graduated and um, had a degree in food and nutrition and started working in the food industry. I worked for some contract management companies. Uh, At one point, I was in Oklahoma City and uh, decided to go on and get my master's degree at the University of Oklahoma, which I got in food systems management. Pause just a minute. Pause just a minute. I went to OU, so boomer sooner. Oh, you did? Yes, I did. Yeah, that's a great school, too, but I got to tell you, I like TCU better. (laughs) Uh, I'm not not mad at that. Go ahead. (laughs) So you went to OU for a little bit. So I went to I went to you got my master's and then I just spent you know close to I guess twenty years or so uh, working in um, the industry in corporations. I okay. worked for um, a large contract management uh, company. I did a variety of roles. I had um, food systems operations where I managed uh, multiple food service organizations in hospitals across a multi-state area. I worked in business development, and then I spent some time at LSG Sky Chefs in airline catering. Mm-hmm. And I covered the Americas. I was working in Las Colinas, but I had all the way from Canada all the way down to Latin America, wow. and I was responsible for uh, all things regulatory. So I had food safety, uh, FDA, USDA compliance. I had employee safety, OSHA compliance, and I had environmental safety, uh, EPA compliance. And really, really enjoyed that job. And then most recently, I was working at a healthcare coalition called TPC. This is a coalition of community based hospitals that come together like a healthcare system would without actually, um, you know, being merged as one organization. And I was there when I had a phone call from a recruiter uh, telling me about the CEO position at Tarrant Area Food Bank. And I really uh, would never have thought of such a great opportunity uh, if a recruiter had not contacted me about it. Um, She sent me a a long um, job description with a long list of responsibilities. And, uh, you know, because it's so local and such a very important cause, I really was very diligent about reviewing the responsibilities and thinking back about my work experience to make sure that I had indeed um, done something related to the responsibility or the criteria that the selection committee was looking for. Do you know I went through four months of interviews for this position? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. It was really something. So they really took a lot of time. The the search committee took a lot of time to vet me. And I took a lot of time thinking about the position and what it would mean and how I could help and um, what impact I could have. And, you know, I just, with each interview, I became more and more excited about the opportunity. And it has really been a great fit for me. I'm just very, very pleased to have landed here. It's a great organization, a lot of really, really good people, and, of course, um, you know, such important work that it's very satisfying. This sounds like an excellent partnership and amazing career you've had so far, all in the food industry. I've been blown away just by this conversation alone. And speaking about being blown away, tell the truth. How amazing is it when you see on your website that you guys have had 1 million meals each week and 60 million nutritious meals delivered in a year? 
Well, it's really amazing. Um, I think we surpassed uh, every expectation that the community had for us, and certainly we have surpassed every record um, that the the Terranary Food Bank has had in its history since 1982. So it, it is the first time we have ever served over a million meals a week. It is the first time that we have ever delivered and distributed over 60 million pounds of food in a year. So it's been a phenomenal year. We have a fiscal year that, that starts October 1st and runs through the end of September. And so those numbers that you're seeing on our website are from our last fiscal year. And I can tell you we've just uh, closed out our first quarter of fiscal year 2021. It ended the end of December, and uh, the record continues to grow. So this first quarter surpasses anything that we did in last fiscal year. And it, it, it tells you that the demand is very high. And, uh, of course, that's very sad that we have so, ma- so many in our community that are struggling. But I am very proud that the food bank has been able to meet the demand. We are so proud of you as well. Tarrant County, actually the Tarrant Area Food Bank President and CEO, Julie Butner, is joining us this morning. And, and Julie, you mentioned that you just started there a little over a year ago. Can you talk about what you had thought you were going to do and then when the pandemic hit, how you guys were able to change your game plan up to meet the demand that so many people have for food in this area? Well, you know, when I started, because this is a a very strong organization with a lot of really good people. And so when I started the position, I thought, well, I can, you know, join in very gradually and very slowly and get to know everybody and kind of learn the systems and Mm -hmm. learn the processes and you know, reach out to the donors and reach out to other um, community liaison and liaisons and just, you know, take my time with it um, because it is so stable. And my predecessor had been in position for 22 years. And so there really has been a lot of stability here. And of course, that was anything but the truth. I think I started uh, that journey and 60 days into the job, we were looking at a um, a wide spread pandemic. And the first decision I was faced with that was really different was uh, empty bowls. Every March, we have an annual fundraiser. It is the biggest fundraiser that we do here at Tarrant Area Food Bank, empty bowls. And um, I I can recall that was the first decision. Our development officer came to me and said, I I think we're going to have to cancel this. We can't gather, you know, 5,000 people even in a large room, uh, given the scale of this pandemic. And it was a pretty scary decision to have to make uh, in the first 90 days of of my leadership that we did. And I think, you know, just really came to fruition when that decision was made that we're going to have to really pivot here mm-hmm. and do things differently. There is no way that we're going to be able to meet the needs of the community doing things the way uh, we have been doing them. And so I gathered the executive leadership team, and we talked about what we could be doing differently. Uh, I think the second heftiest decision uh, that I had to make, uh, the chief operating officer at the time uh, came to me and said, I think we need to uh, solicit support from the National Guard and ask Governor Abbott um, to deploy some troops to help us distribute the food. So we're, we're heavily reliant here on volunteers. Uh, in fiscal year 19, we had 20,000 community volunteers that helped us deliver our mission. And we immediately had to shut that down. We, we couldn't take volunteers into our distribution center because we could not safely right. um, you know, follow the CDC guidelines. And so how are we going to do, we're a staff of about 100, you know, how are we going to do 50% greater distribution volumes uh, without those volunteers and with a staff of only 100? And so we're part of a larger group. Uh, The state of Texas uh, has an organization called Feeding Texas out of Austin who, um, you know, help us uh, band together, share best practices, and they do a lot of legislative work for us down in Austin. And they had uh, reached out to the food banks and said, would you like us to ask Governor Abbott for uh, National Guard support 
during this crisis. And so the COO came to me and said, I think we need to do this. And um, that was the second scariest, biggest decision uh, that I had to make in the first, you know, 120 days on the job. But we made it, and we we got the 90 uh, troops deployed to us. And I'll tell you, it is what allowed us to turn the corner. Uh, we, We would not have been able to pivot the way we pivoted without their support. You know, the military is used to changing processes, mm-hmm. responding quickly, and they helped lead us through that. And, and probably the biggest change that we made was how we distribute food. So in the past, we've, and we still to, today, um, rely on our, oh, 350, 360 partner agencies out in the community and the, in the counties that we serve. Uh, we deliver food to them, and then they deliver the food dr- directly to the neighbors in need, the, the community members that reside right there in their zip code. And with the pandemic and with this heightened need, uh, we at Terranary Food Bank needed to deliver direct to clients. And so these mega mobile markets that we're doing now um, – were started with the support of the National Guard. We immediately had 90 men and women from the Air National Guard that helped us pack boxes, which, you know, we don't typically pack food in boxes for uh, neighbors in need. We, we usually have pantries set up, and they go through kind of like a grocery store or a mini-mart, and they select what they want. But because of the social distancing, we were forced to come up with this alternative means and putting food into boxes and then having them come in their cars to parking lots where we pop the trunks and load the food directly into their vehicle. And and we at Terranary Food Bank were doing that work rather than wow. relying solely on our our partner agencies. And the, the, the military helped us set up those standard operating procedures. So it was almost like a drive-through where you could pick up these supplies as opposed to, like you said, going into a mini-mart store? Yeah, so the, the partner agencies that we have, they're in churches, mm-hmm. schools, healthcare clinics, boys and girls clubs, community centers, and they allocate a space inside um, their facility that's set up like a mini-mart. Sure. And we stock the shelves and we stock reach-in coolers and freezers. And neighbors in need can come in, those who are qualified come in, and they select what they want to eat, like we all do at going to a grocery store. It's a very similar model, just on a smaller scale. But because many of these facilities were closed, you mm-hmm. know, schools closed down and community centers and senior centers closed down, um, and then just, you know, the, the social distancing that is required. And you remember the scare we all had going to grocery stores at oh, the beginning. Yes. So um, we set up these mega mobile markets, these drive-through distribution uh, places in, in parking lots. And the the National Guard was there as our volunteer support. We, As I said, we had 90 men and women who were there helping us load groceries into cars for people who needed food. So the troops can't be there forever. Have you started introducing, uh, reintroducing volunteers yet, or do you have a plan for that? Can you go, can you, know, you elaborate a little we, bit? I, yeah. Like it, I, this is something I'm also very proud of. We, we have figured out how to do this, right? We, before awesome. the Air National Guard left, we said, do us a favor and write out the standard operating procedure so that my ops team can pick up that document and execute against it. And so we found some locations, um, Herman Memorial, Clark Field, uh, through the Fort Worth ISD has been one of them, that are consistent locations where we have a mega mobile market every week. We took the standard operating procedures and we began soliciting volunteers from the community to come help us at those those big distributions, and they can do it because we're outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all wearing masks. You know, we have uh, sanitation stations and sanitizers and and all of the requirements uh, that CDC guidelines outline. So we can take volunteers in those instances, and we have been. And the, the public's been very generous with their time, and they've come out, and we've been able to do them on our own. Now, we, we still, we just got another 30-person uh, unit from the Army Guard, and they're with us uh, through the end of January. And so we always, you know, if, if, if the governor makes that available to us, I will always sign up for it because they're 
they're just tremendously helpful to the cause. But we have been able to to um, host these mega mobile markets with volunteers, and it's worked equally well. So we've turned the corner, and we know how to do it on our own, and we'll be able to continue to do this for as long as we need. And in fact, you know, we feel like it's something we'll probably continue to do even after the pandemic because it is a very efficient way to get food to people. Just like Zoom is becoming the new normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, if there's a silver lining yeah. with the pandemic, you do learn new ways of doing things that maybe you wouldn't have considered previously. We're talking with Julie Butner, the CEO and president of the Tarrant Area Food Bank. And, and Julie, you know, the winter weather has been kind to us so far. Uh, are there different plans on how to distribute or how to um, get your food available to the people who need it with the weather changing? Well, I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. The first thing I'll tell you is, do you know on October 31st, Halloween, we did a Halloween distribution. My staff was so excited about it because we all dressed up in costume. Mm-hmm. And we had um, some of the local retail donors that gave candy that we could give to the children who were in the cars waiting in line. It poured down rain. Oh I have never my. seen so much rain in my life. Oh, my. <laughs> But the cars were there, and the people were there, and they were hungry, and my staff said, let's do it. Break out the umbrellas. I'm telling you, we did. You know, come rain or shine, we were there, uh, gear on, ready to go. And so so we will continue to do that. But we are also, in this year, um, looking to expand our school pantries, our pantries inside colleges and universities, Many, many people don't realize that we have a lot of college uh, students who are food insecure. And so having pantries located on campus, um, having pantries located in elementary schools, junior high schools, high schools, we are um, seeking to expand that program and working very closely with all of the ISDs that um, are in our service area. And then um, healthcare pantries is another area that will help us in inclement weather. Um, we are looking at expanding clinics, um, both with John Peter Smith and with Cook Children's Hospital, so we can have pantries actually inside clinics. So when community members are going in, you know, for other for other reasons to see their doctor, um, there is a pantry there if they are food insecure or if their healthcare provider identifies that they're food insecure, food would be readily accessible. Now, Julie, a lot of people usually drop off non-perishable food items, but uh, are you guys benefiting more from a financial donation? And how much more food can you purchase compared to food that people just drop off? You know, um, We right now are very fortunate that the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture and the Texas Department of Agriculture are both redirecting food from farmers and ranchers that are not able to export their good either because of trade mitigation or because of the virus. They are redirecting that food to the 200 recognized food banks across the United States. That's awesome. So pre-pandemic, we may have had 35%, 40% of our total donations coming from the federal and state government, whereas today um, about 55% is coming from USDA and TDA. So very uh, good quality, um, wholesome, nutritious food, a lot of produce, a lot of protein, dairy, eggs. So we have a lot of food. That coupled with our very generous uh, retail uh, grocer uh, donors, and we have uh, close to 200 of them. Uh, here in Dallas-Fort Worth, we are fortunate there are a lot of uh, warehouses, a lot of distribution centers, a lot of manufacturers, so we have very strong food donors that help us. So we're in great shape when we talk about food, even with this you know, 50, 55% increased need. Uh, between the the, uh, USDA and TDA and 
the retail support that we're receiving. We have uh, plenty of food. Operationally, um, because we don't have the volunteers, I've had to add staff to the mm-hmm. team. Um, because we're distributing so much more food, I've had to add vehicles. There's a cost of you know gasoline and utilities and moving and repackaging product to get it out in the right quantity uh, to our partner agencies. Um, so th- the funding from the community is absolutely essential for us to do the work that we do. Now, TAFB is Tarrant Area Food Bank. I almost said Tarrant County. So my question is, why is it Tarrant Area? Are you guys helping out in some counties that are not necessarily Tarrant? Yes, and thank you for asking me that question. When I arrived, um, (laughs) that was probably one of the biggest misnomers out in the community Um, People thought we were just serving Fort Worth, and we actually have 13 counties, including Tarrant County. A lot of West Uh, Texas, right? A lot of West of Fort Worth. Yeah. I mean, in Eamon Carter fashion, right? He Mm -hmm. would love it. We are right along the 35 corridor, mostly to the west and south. We split Denton with our sister food bank, the North Texas Food Bank, which is located in Plano, Texas. And Plano covers the east side of the Metroplex. Right. So we are much, much more than just Tarrant County. We have 13 counties total in our service area. About 3 million uh, residents in the service area and about 575,000 who are people in need, people who are food insecure in the area that we serve. Do you have any upcoming events in 2021 that we need to know about? You know, I I just am so disappointed that this pandemic is lasting, as we all are. Um, Who would have thought that, you know, nine months into it, we're still looking at another six months before we think we might be able to, to have everybody with the vaccine. But we are once again having to cancel our Empty Bowls event which is historically held in March. And we typically have about 5,000 people who come out and support that event through ticket sales. And we do it um, in a big conference center, and and we just can't do that again. So we're trying um, to revamp a a, um, a revision Mm -hmm. of the Empty Bowls event and I don't have all the details of that. We're working on that now and hope to have something released by the end of January. But we will do something, um, an empty bowl event of sorts, without actually gathering people in an unsafe environment. So that's coming up. Um, uh, we have, uh, of course, our mega mobile distributions that we're holding every Friday at Herman Memorial Clark Field. Um, and we're working closely with our three largest grocer, uh, grocers who are Kroger, HEB, and Albertsons, and each of them is doing an anti-hunger campaign on our behalf where we will benefit, and community members can participate by going to their local Kroger, Albertsons, and HEB stores. Can you tell us off the top of your head, and I'm putting you on the spot here, what do you think personally has been your highlight? What's touched your heart the most over the past year that you guys have been able to do? It might not have been the biggest thing, but maybe it's a moment that you said, wow, we've really made a difference or wow, I've made a difference with the Tarrant Area Food Bank. Oh, my gosh. There's just so many. It, I just, I'm so impressed with the staff here and how much change we've had to undergo in such a short period of time. You know, change is hard for anybody, but our world is really turned upside down, and everybody here on the team has really <clears throat> risen to the occasion. Every time, every time we hit a new goal, um, you know, the next month it just it just gets bigger, and it's it's really amazing how long we have maintained that. But <clears throat> just seeing the impact that we have in the community and um, how many you know how many people are really hurting right now because of unemployment that need our help 
and uh, you know, being out there when we're doing these big mega mobile distributions and talking to people who were in their cars mm-hmm. and just you know, getting a sense of how much they need us and how much we're able to help. Well, let me tell you something. You guys have been absolutely amazing. Everyone involved with the Tarrant Area Food Bank, again, we cannot thank you enough. And, of course, talking to you, Julie Butner, the president and CEO. Much more success. Everybody knows how to get in touch with you. Can you repeat the website where people wanted to donate or if they wanted to bring by some uh, some food products or some goods? Yes, uh, org. If you want to volunteer your time, there is a volunteer icon that you can click, and it will take you to all those opportunities that are safe and following CDC guidelines. And if you want to donate money and you have money to donate, there is a Donate Now button, and you can click that icon, and it will take you to the donation page. I just I thank the community so much. They, you know, we we can't do this work without their generous support, both in terms of hours and in terms of dollars. And so I just thank you very much, and and thank you for having me on your show. Anytime. Thanks again, Julie. Appreciate you. You bet. I'm Chris Arnold of 105.3 The Fan. Thanks for joining me. Tune in next week as we focus on other organizations doing great things in our community right here on Better Living. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.